Hi, I'm James, and this is James Explores the New Mutants, an issue-by-issue exploration of Marvel's comic book series, The New Mutants. Welcome to episode number 58, entitled Back to the Future 2, in which I'll be examining issue number 49. Please stay tuned. Welcome back. Before we dive into this issue of New Mutants, I'd like to address self in the room, and that is my long unannounced hiatus from the podcast. Now, there's a number of things that were going on. Life was super busy. I just moved. We have a kid. Living situation wasn't super settled. Didn't have a job. Lots of reasons. Um, and those reasons were preoccupying, and things have settled out. So I have more time. And with that time, I come, keep coming back to this idea of recording the podcast. There are some other issues that were bothering me while I was recording episodes, and a lot of that has to do with quality of the episodes and the way I go about reviewing the material. I want to put out something I'm proud of that listeners appreciate. And if I'm not doing that, it's hard for me to want to keep doing this. So what, what can I say about that? You know, um, I'm trying a new way of recording. I used to record it on my iPhone and edit it, try to edit it on my phone. And that was really hard. The software wasn't great. The website for Anchor wasn't really designed for that. At least I had issues with it. It may be better now. So what I have kind of concluded is I, I, I'm going to try it on my computer, on um, my laptop. I've downloaded Audacity software. I've got a microphone, mic stand, all that kind of jazz. I'm going to try to edit it on my computer. I'm not great at it, so it's going to be what it is. And I'm okay with that, I think. We'll see how it sounds after a couple episodes. Hopefully it sounds better and can work with that. The other issue, which was the way I go about reviewing these episodes, uh, issues, sorry. I really struggle, you know, with just narrating issues. Like, that's not enough. I really believe, like, if people want to read the comic, they should read the comic. They don't need me to read the comic to them over, you know, on a podcast. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't work for me for a lot of reasons. Um, Mostly that, the, the biggest being that, this is a visual medium. Comics are a visual medium. And for me just to essentially read the episode, the issue to you on the episode, and you not have the art in front of you, like, you're missing the experience, right? Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I would like to try to be more critical in my analysis of these issues. Um, it's hard because I do love it so much. I love the New Mutants. It's, like I've, I've said many times on this podcast, it's my favorite comic by far, hands down. Like, I love it. I love this comic series so much. And so it's really hard for me to always to sit there and pick it apart because I do like it so much. You know, I love Chris Claremont. It's hard for me to criticize him because of what he did. I mean, like, his run on X-Men and New Mutants and other X-related material, it's really unprecedented when you think about it. So he's given me so much. That's not to say I can't be critical of it, but... it does, it does weigh on, on, my, on my willingness to be critical to a certain degree. As well as, I'm pretty easygoing. Um, I can find something to like in just about everything. You know, it's not hard for me to focus on the good things in something and kind of brush away the stuff that I don't like as much or isn't as, as good. Um, where I really struggle is when a massive change happens, right? And... It's different than what I liked. Uh, good example is when X-Factor starts 
and they stop creating new mutants, right? Like, that was a huge shift, and I really struggled with that. Now, I've gone back and read those, and I've collected those X-Factor books, and you know what? I like them. But it took me some time to get to that. So, like, that that all plays uh, plays into that for me. Um, but like I said, the idea being I really want to try to be a little more critical of what I'm reading, what I'm talking to the listeners about, and I want to try to critique the art. Now, that's going to be the hardest part for me, probably, because I'm not an artist. I don't... I'm just not an artist. It's not, not something I'm familiar with, but I'm going to try. I, I, I'm trying to educate myself a little bit on, like, the techniques and to help me understand comics and how the art relates to the written word. And really, if I can just critique that a little bit more, I think I can put out an episode that's that's worth my time and worth the listener's time. And that's important to me. That's really important to me. So I'm going to try that. And something else I've decided that I'm going to give a shot is instead of a weekly release schedule where I release a episode every week, I'm going to go back to bi-weekly. That's going to give me a little bit more time in between episodes. It's going to give me more time to not be at work or, you know, always tied up in something. It's it's my hope. And so we're going to give that a shot. Uh, And hopefully these changes will let me produce a podcast, uh, put out a podcast that people enjoy and that I have fun uh, recording. So that all being said, those are the that's the idea. So uh, we're still going to be releasing on Wednesday mornings. That's the plan at this point. New episodes on Wednesday mornings, and uh, you know I, I think at this point, I really encourage you, the listeners, if there's something you think would be interesting or helpful, or you have just some ideas on what we could do differently on this end, on my end, um, I'd be happy to hear from you. Please, any feedback, any thoughts, any ideas. And at the end of the episode, if you do want to take the time to give me some of that feedback, uh, I will announce ways that you can contact the podcast. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. So before we dive into this issue, we're going to sink our teeth into this creative team. Obviously, we've got Chris Claremont writing. Now, enjoy him because... He's going to be parting ways with the book shortly. We have a guest penciler by the name of Brett Blevins. His time on New Mutants is really the defining moment of his career. He is going to pencil the book for a majority of the issues from issue 55 through 85. During his career, he works for both Marvel and DC. He storyboarded uh, cartoons for DC Comics, and in 2018... He collaborated with Joe Keating on Stellar for Image Comics. Now, the guest inker is Val Merrick, and he's a comic book artist, commercial artist. He's really well-known as a co-creator of Howard the Duck. He collaborated with Steve Gerber and James Huddle um, to create Howard the Duck. After moving to New York, he formed Upstart Associates with Howard Chaikin, Walt Simonson, and Jim Starling. So that's a pretty elite club there. He also acted off-Broadway and appeared in the 1977 low-budget horror film The Demon Lover, shot in and around Detroit. So if you're a fan of cheesy horror movies, that one you should probably look into. I know I will be. Now, our letter, Tom Wozniczewski, we've got regular colorist, 
Glenn Oliver, and uh, editor is Ann Lucenti, and editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. So it's pretty much standard fare everywhere else. The first page is a splash page, and this is, I think, a perfect example of the abilities of Brett Blevins. If you look at Doug's facial expressions, the sheer joy, amusement, excitement, the animation that is occurring on this 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 panel, like it is explosive. It is almost jumping out at you. We have Warlock, who's transformed into a skateboard, and Doug is riding this rocket-powered skateboard that is his friend Warlock. And Warlock's face is also exuding excitement and joy. They are having a blast. That is what this page conveys to me. And it also lays out the scene, and their narration finishes it off. We find out through the narration and the images that have been provided to us that Doug and Warlock are racing through the skyways of Uptown, where the good people live. And pretty easily, just from the image on the page, we know that this is the future. What we also know through the narration, this is, is New York, and this is called, what, what is called the city now. Unlike the earlier issue, where we found the team shortly after they had been teleported by Eliana in trying to find their bearings on the grounds of the X-Mansion in the future, right? This drops us into the middle of the action. We are in the midst of something that is happening, and we don't know what it is. So we spend the good portion of this issue trying to catch up with where the new mutants already know what, what they already know. We're trying to figure it out. So much of the issue is spent just staying with events as they unfold, which then kind of begin to answer the questions of what's happening. Anyways, Doug and Warlock, they're on some sort of mission, and we don't find out what that mission really is until later. We also find out they're evading the law, law enforcement, um, or the Arbiters, who, if you'll note, wear very similar uniforms to those of the New Mutants. At one point, during their they're fleeing these these law enforcement people, the Arbiters. Uh, Warlock transforms his head as he's got a shield and he's blocking phaser blasts. He transforms his face into that of a duck. And you've got to think that that's probably a nod to how the duck. Now, whether Blevins drew that and, you know, we had the ink or ink over it, or Merrick added it in, it's hard to say. I don't know. It might take a little bit of research. If you know, please let me know. I'm curious. But it definitely seems to be some sort of a nod to Howard the Duck. Now, what ends up happening after the Arbiters, uh, they escape the Arbiters, they scroll, they spray paint this big message on one of the sides of the buildings. Humans are people too, is what the message says. And Doug says, I sure hope those jokers get the message. So we know that something is happening here that isn't like something's changed this future is different than the future we saw in the last issue and it's certainly different than the issue uh than the issues of norm that, that occur in, in normal time where doug is from so something is different here and humans are apparently being persecuted is 
maybe what we're starting to, to gleam onto. So this is this is where we're dropped. And what we're gonna come to find out is that this this future eighty seven oh five zero Earth eighty seven oh five zero is an Earth that we've not seen before. Now Often when Chris Claremont ventures into the future, we see this stark, very dark landscape, um, very dominated by humans. Mutants are often victimized and rounded up and put in internment camps. You know, we look at most of X-Men's history, and this is the future we're left with. We're left with a future that is dominated by humanity, where mutants have been rounded up, captured, and subdued, and... Oftentimes, sentinels are used to ensure that humanity has control. This future is not that future. This future is much different. This is the first time where we see mutants having taken control, where mutants rule the planet. And this isn't stark for mutants either. And humans haven't been rounded up. They've been left to rot. And we're going to see that how that plays out throughout this issue. But this is also not... This is not, not what we're going to see later on when Apocalypse, uh, Age of Apocalypse occurs, right? This is not that future either. This is a future where things, if you are in the upper part of the city, seem idealistic and perfect and wonderful and everyone's happy and mutants are doing well and there's no reason for anything to be different. Whereas on the ground, humanity really can't even exist it's day to day whether they'll survive or not and like i said we'll get to that later in the issue but that is the future that we are confronted with here and it's worth noting because it is the first time that claremont's ever presented a future where mutants were in control and it's going to lead to some interesting conflicts and potential outcomes as we dig deeper into this issue elsewhere heroes plaza we find Danny really walking Heroes Plaza. She's examining what it appears to be a memorial to mutants who have di- who died in this great war. And so here's where we really begin to find out what happened. And what we see in Heroes Plaza, which is, I, I really enjoy the art in here. Like, I, I think, again, Brett Blevins does a great job just really laying the groundwork for what what was memorialized by the mutants who rule rule the earth right now. And in Heroes Plaza, we see statues, right, of Rogue and Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Storm, Cannonball, and Magic, right? They're all these characters, all these heroes who are all mutants, all X-Men. So these are the people that are remembered by the ruling power right now. And not only that, Heroes Plaza is a replica of the Xavier's mansion and the grounds and the school for gifted youngsters this is important to note that this is a replica because it's not where it would have been normally this isn't down in westchester it's not on the ground this is elevated off the ground this is in the sky so we know it's rebuilt reconstructed it is a memorial to that uh, place and time we also begin to figure out that what happened to spark the war and resulted in this topsy-turvy world was was Charles Xavier's being killed by federal troops. Magneto took over and crushed humanity. It's the Great War that created this current mutant utopia and humans live in ghettos. 
So Danny's the one we find here examining the statues, really examining, like, what happened, trying, you know, piecing it together. And through her narration and her thoughts, we figure out what's happened. That's how we figured out all that stuff. And really, it's the paradox, you know. This is where we are confronted with our paradox, that, like, if the, if Danny can't get home, can this future happen? And if she gets home, can she change this future? Can she do something to make this different? Or will trying to make do something different make it worse? So this is what she's pondering. And Sam shows up and, and they have a discussion. She tells Sam that, you know, she'd always hoped and really believed that, just assumed that they'd all get old and live happily ever after. And Sam responds, maybe that's part and parcel of getting older, Danny. Facing up to the unpleasant realities that kids get to hide from. Sam notices, too, that everyone around the plaza is a mutant. That includes in all of Uptown, right? They're all mutants. And Danny responds, that's right, everyone who isn't wearing a slave tag. They're only human, and that's less than nothing. And here's where we really get to see the reversal of right so not only is this a mutant utopia the first time we see that but we're also seeing for the first time x-men related characters people following xavier's dream which is mutants living in harmony with humanity right nobody above anybody else everybody's equal right so we're seeing people that believed that actually living up to that because when the roles are reversed the new mutants do the right thing and they step up and they help the humans. They fight for the rights of the humans. So even though they are part of this higher class, this higher order, and they could turn a blind eye and just ignore the plight of the humans and, and just continue with their business and reap the benefits of being this upper class, they do what's right. And they, they fight for the oppressed minority, the humans. And... We see them attempt to bring them supplies, food, and medical equipment. As the issue continues, uh, we really begin to see this development of the stark contrast between those, those from uptown and those from downtown. The uptown is beautiful. It's breathtakingly amazing. It's, it's architecturally grand, and everything is up-to-date and pristine and shining and glimmering, right? It's a shining beacon. Well, everything downtown, well, that's old New York. These are dilapidated buildings. There's really no services. There's not very many jobs, if there's any at all. It is squalor and really, really rough down there. And we begin to see a window into that when Danny and Sam attempt to help this family. And we they stumble across this scene of these arbiters who were really finding out more and more, they don't care about the humans at all. This police force doesn't actually even really normally do anything downtown. The only time they come downtown is to take mutant children from the parents. We find out through thought bubbles and narration that the father of this child had wanted to sell his kid off for money, essentially, and the mutants were willing to pay him. 
So these this Darbagers show up and they're ready to take this child from the mother. Mother's fighting, of course, and screaming, and, and they rip the child away from the mother and in step Danny and, and uh, Sam when they write this wrong. So Katie Power shows up and she is different, right? She is aged and she's aged extremely. Like she looks like an old woman. She's frumpy. She's sagging all over. She's wrinkly. She's got gray hair. She's super old. She's also absorbed somehow the powers of her siblings. Her siblings have long died, probably during the Great War. Um, she was once a hero of the Great War, too. So that's something that's important. She's now the leader of the Resistance. She's fighting these mutant overlords to protect and help these humans. And so she's here, too. So they they join forces. They beat off the Arbiters. They win that fight. Mom keeps baby. Now the dad's upset, right? He is irritated and disgusted with the mutants for their help. He didn't want it. He was trying to make a deal like he was looking to get wealthy and to put himself in a position to be better off. So that story arc, that line, that thread is dropped. It's never picked up again in this issue. And... You know, it, to me, that's kind of an interesting piece. That's something that's kind of intriguing is by these interruptions from the new mutants bombarding into the situation, disrupting it. Yes, they've protected that kid. Yes, they helped the mother, but the father is upset. That family's probably going to be ripped apart. And what are the chances the Arbiters won't be back for that child? And if they come back and take the child, will they gain any reward for having sold their child off? Like, this is all gray and murky, right? Like, there's no right or wrong answer here. It's just a thought experiment, kind of, I guess, in a lot of ways. But it's an interesting, intriguing point of narration that, that is just kind of left lying. I, I think this is a fairly interesting world. It'd be interesting to see the nuances in another miniseries or something just about this this time, this place, this this uh, this other Earth. Katie and Sam and Danny, they've now joined forces, and they're going to continue forward together and attempt to help humanity. Later, Uptown, the office of the Chief Arbiter. It's a massive, expansive room with this giant window overlooking the city. This utopia they've created. We see in the foreground, in front of this window, silhouettes of three figures and a statue of what can only be Magneto. One of the Arbiters is making a report to, to the Chief Arbiter of what occur has recently been occurring. This officer making the report is a mutant with the ability to shapeshift. And Brett Blevins uses six panels to show each of the people that are being reported on. We have Sam, Danny, Doug, Warlock, Katie Power, and the human, the father of the child who made the deal. For his children. And he, he tells the chief arbiter the news, what has happened, what has recently been occurring. And what we begin to discover as, as the story unfolds here is that the chief arbiter recognizes all of these people, except for maybe the human. And we also learn he had a ch temper as a child, but has since learned to control it. So if you don't know who this is already, I wish I could remember what it was like reading this the first time I read it. Like, if I realized. I mean, if we look at the cover, we see a silhouette of somebody's head 
uh, flanked on either side by the by the arbiters, and in the foreground we have the the hero rebellion being zapped in this pinkish uh, explosion, kind of. And there's some other silhouette images that kind of poke at who this is. I mean, it's it's Roberto and his concierge or right hand woman would be Magma. These are the older versions. These aren't. These are survivors. They survived this great mutant war. They were heroes fighting the humans and now have risen to power in this mutant utopia. So they're from this world. That's that's who is in control. Are new mutants, old, much older versions of themselves, certainly, and having been influenced by events that had unfolded during, in their timeline, right? But that's who rules here. They're certainly not impressed. You know, they've been fighting to to bring Kate Power in. That they, she is a well-known rebel leader. She had fought bravely as a hero against the humans uh, during the Great War, and now she is fighting to protect the very people she fought so hard to defend mutants against. Right? She has taken on that mental, and she has been joined by these by the new mutants that had teleported here. What we also begin to find out is that this human, they call him a sub. They call all humans subs, these, these arbiters and the mutants, uh, ruling class. The sub gave information to the Arbiters, about the Resistance and their whereabouts. They're beginning to make plans on how to strike back at the Rebellion. So let's talk quickly here about Brett Blevins' art. I, I enjoy him. I think he does a very good job, especially with images in the foregrounds. And there's moments, there are panels that are really, really beautiful. Like his first splash page, I really am impressed by the Arbiters' office. The initial, the initial view we get there. There are moments in the in the scenes of the downtown area that are just great. Like, he shows the, the beauty of Uptown initially and really conveys the desolation. He, he conveys that desolation of downtown um, on page 8 so perfectly, so beautifully. So he has these great establishing shots, but beyond that, I feel like his, his background and imagery surrounding his foreground characters... Often is, is not is left. There's lots to be desired, at times, and normally I wouldn't. I don't think focus so much on the background, but the background tells informs so much of what is happening in the comic in terms of the separation between the humans and the mutants. Right? It really conveys. I mean, he's used that to convey the difficulties the humans face and the successes and the utopian vision of the world that the mutants now have right like he's used the background successfully in a number of places and then there's moments in the story where the story is just happening and there's characters there but the background is not serving any purpose and that's fine normally in a comic in my opinion but it feels weird to me in this issue because we have the background so relevant to the story if that makes sense if I feel like if, if the background hadn't been used to convey so much, uh, to influence the story so much, I would have a different opinion of that. And it is just a comic, and, and the characters and the, and the writing do convey that, but, but I feel like the background has more influence. And again, like I said, this is a guest writing spot for Blevins. 
Um, I don't know what he was working on at the time. And, you know, it's his first time on this book, you know, and working with Claremont. And I don't know what that was like. And I don't know what it was like uh, trying to get stuff inked. So, and, and who knows, you know, uh, what what happened in that process of inking and, and the art that was put on the page. Uh, but I do feel like there's times in this in this issue where the background does not serve the story in the same way ahead and to me that's that's a knock but i do think that later on we're going to see Levin's when uh you know later on and and his backgrounds they improve significantly I, if we look at when we look to inferno uh, Blevins does the work for New Moon's books there, and his backgrounds serve that story so well, um, much better than they do here, I would argue. Um, and so it'll be interesting when we go back and, and we see his later work, and how does that correlate with what we're seeing on the page here? Um, his, his style becomes more cartoony uh, later on as well, and I don't see that here. And that could be the inks. That could be the ink, the, you know, uh, Merrick doing the inks. He may have um, altered the style we're seeing on the page slightly by the way he inks this book. But those are my, that's really my big contention in this issue, is that the background just doesn't serve the story in the same way throughout the book that it did does at certain times in the book. Um, not that that makes it a bad issue. It's just uh, at times the imagery to me is, un uh, is forgettable because of that. Meanwhile, downtown. The New Mutants and Katie Power help distribute supplies, desperately needed supplies, to children and families living in the downtown area. Sam, he sees a situation so similar to the Great Depression. And Danny, she looks at it through the eyes of a Native American. She sees the plight of the modern plight of the reservation system in America. Both see the situation as desperate, hopeless, and full of despair, right? Like, this is a bad situation. And Danny, she has this Valkyrie power, remember? And she can see death is around these children. Most of them are going to die. She can see that. She also begins to realize, like, yes, these supplies they're handing out, they might help today, but what, what about tomorrow? What about the day after? For those in the downtown area, the reality of life is malnutrition, disease, and poor sanitation, and lack of uh, medical facility. All of these contribute to their high mortality rates. And to a person, the new mutants really begin to understand and realize that the mutants, their brethren in Uptown, really have no care or desire to aid or help to deal with the humans at all they, they have no desire to to do anything to help the humans in fact most mutants in this time period view the humans in the downtown as less than human as subs brutish forebearers well the mutants they're the true humans they are the evolutionary next step it's at this point that we're introduced to Katie Powers' new mutant Brack Pack. These are mutant children from the uptown that she's recruited, uh, mostly teenagers probably, that she's recruited to an attempt to fulfill Xavier's dream, right? To have mutants and humans live together in peace and harmony. So she uses her new mutant Brack Pack to fight the oppressors and to help the humans. Um, one of the, these mutant ch uh, teenagers 
goes by Archangel, and that's the first time we're going to see that name used. Uh, he's a character, obviously, that comes up in X uh, Factor and will later be an X Men. Angel, uh, also known as Archangel. So these two characters aren't related as far as we know. Maybe there was an idea they would work out and be like connected, but but they're not. So they're there helping distribute these supplies and meeting the new mutants. And all of a sudden, the ARBs, the Arbitrators, attack. Their strike team attacks. There's huge volcanic eruptions. In this whole battle, we see a lot of imagery and events and power usage that hints at some characters that we've already talked about. Sunspot and Magma have both decided to go for themselves. They want to see these kids themselves. They know the New Mutants, remember? They came up with them. They were New Mutants. So they are desperate. They want to try to meet their friends and bring them maybe along to help them. So, like, that was their whole intent. Now, during the battle, um, it rages. Warlock and Doug, they end up merging in the fighting. And this is also a concern, right? Warlock could infect Doug, but they do it anyways. One, to protect Doug, and it's going to become relevant later in the story. Now, this battle is ended when Kate, Katie Power and Sam are both subdued. And that's when everyone realizes this big, dark, foreboding figure has appeared. And it looks similar to Sunspot, which we already know. In the present day, Magneto, he awakens from a nightmare. And this is hugely important because these images depict his history with the Nazis and the Holocaust and place him as a survivor of horrific events. And not only that, they depict how his powers manifested, right? They manifest for him in his teen years when his family is killed by the Nazis who came to round them up. And he harbors so much guilt and resentment at himself for what happened. He's taken to a concentration camp and he ends up surviving Auschwitz. So this places him in history in a way that is hugely significant. It also makes him less of a villain uh, and more humanizes him all the more, I believe. And so he knows what persecution is, and no wonder he stakes such a strong stance to protect mutants. He witnessed the Holocaust. He survived the Holocaust. He knows what humans are capable of. And he's fearful that those same humans, that some of those humans would easily wipe out mutants if they were allowed to. And so no wonder he's taken such a hard stance to protect mutant kind. Like, so it justifies and explains so much in Magneto. Not only that, this is the first time these images are put on the page. So Brett Blevins has hugely influenced comic history here. By creating this dream sequence, it is called back to time and time again. It is fantastic. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous page, honestly. And I'm going to try to make sure I include that in some online viewing so that if you haven't seen this issue, Definitely check this image out. It is fantastic. It is fantastic. Truly fantastic. It might be one of my favorite pages. I think I already said that, but this is gorgeous. It is really gorgeous. Anyways, that being said, so Magneto, he knows that the kids are missing. That's troublesome, right? He has also made a decision to, in, in hopes to save the X-Men to, to um, better their position and to survive. Um, he's joined with the Hellfire Club, and he's taken the mantle of the White King. Um, so he he's really not sure what to do. 
he he's afraid that if if the X Men stand alone, they would be destroyed. But by joining the Hellfire Club, they could be destroyed there too. He doesn't know what the correct decision is, and this is something that plagues his time as headmaster of the school for its entire length that he serves as the headmaster. He never quite can deal with the world. Like, he doesn't know what to do. He's often caught in this gray area, and he's always measuring himself up against Xavier, and never, never is able to break from that. He he is undermined multiple times, whether it's because of the White Queen and meddling of empath, or for just events outside of his control, whether it's the New Mutants running off, not listening to him as an authority figure, hating him because he's was once evil, you know, like, he's just really struggled, and it continues here. And we see him struggling with how to best navigate the current situation. And certainly the situation is much bigger than what we see happening on the pages of the New Mutant comic book. Like, this all ties into events that are happening in the X-Men, right? Like, this ties into uh, the mutant massacre that is building. All of these events are building towards an epic uh, annihilation. Um, and for a long time, a lot of people are going to think the X-Men are dead. You know, that's what it's building to. That is what it's building to. We're going to see that kind of start to play out. In the future, the New Mutants and Katie Power awaken. They're, they've been captured. We, we see them in hold, like in a restraining field. Um, and they're being confronted by Roberto and Amara. This is where we really notice that there's a visual age difference in art between Katie Power and Roberto and Amara. If we think back to the, to the Power Children... Katie Power is the youngest of all those children. Roberto and Amara are at least, you know, probably 15 years older, if not older than that, than Katie, maybe a little less, but it's still at least a 10 years age difference. And Katie looks like a frumpy grandmother. And Roberto and Amara, they look like they're maybe in their 50s. So it's a problem. That's one of the problems I think I have with the issue. It's minor, but it is kind of off-putting and weird um, to see. Anyways... So, Roberto, he's in the foreground, and behind him, over his right shoulder, we see the statue of Magneto. It's interesting to see this because Roberto fought and fought Magneto so hard. And this version of Roberto, da Costa, has really become Magneto. He has taken that role. It's something that he fought so hard as a child. And I, I just like that imagery to really kind of superimpose that and... and uh, really signal that to the, to the reader. Anyways, Roberto tells them that the alliance between Xavier's school and the Hellfire Club saved all of mankind. If it wasn't for that, they would have been wiped out. And really after the war, in Roberto's eyes, the, the mutants were, and the, and the Lord's Cardinal, they were super merciful. They were absolutely merciful. They spared the humans, and they provided them a place to live. Of course, it couldn't be with the mutants, because neither side wanted to live with one. And he argues that the humans live the way they do, and that's by choice. And it's pointed out, you know, that these that they take the, mutant, the mutants, and they foster those mutant children, because they want to keep the spirit of Xavier's school alive. So this is, in Roberto's eyes, all just the way things are. It's not a byproduct of anybody seeing anybody less than. And it's, it's just how things fell out. And if humans could 
provide for themselves or wanted to provide for themselves, they would, but they choose not to. Now, say for he, he's snark, he's, you know, combative and snarky, and he, he, he argues, like, that he points out that people are forced, that when these kids are taken and fostered, they're forced into this. And Roberto, he fires back, saying, Safer was forced into joining the New Mutants. I, I don't see that logic. Uh, in the version we saw in these comics, he comes by choice. When they need somebody's help to work on work with computers and uh, to get some sort of communication with Warlock, he, he comes to help the New Mutants, and it turns out that he's a, he is a mutant and ends up staying on by choice, by his own choice. So the idea of comparing Cypher to those kids uh, is kind of foolish, but uh, I don't know. I guess that's what maniacal monsters and oligarchs do. Anyways, um, New Mutants and, Kate, and Katie Power do escape, though, and they, and they put up a fight, and that happens when Warlock is able to short out the containment field. And here's where we see the first reference of Douglock. Sam yells at at Doug and Warlock. Um, he calls them Douglock. Uh, just kind of an interesting note. Um, anyways, the New Mutants and Kate, they fight... You know, their captors trying to free themselves, but the new mutants are overwhelmed, but they do help Kate escape. And Danny tells Katie as she's fleeing, we're not important, Katie. You are. Save Professor Xavier's dream. Make it a reality. Now, Roberto asks, by what right does Danny judge their society? This is after everybody's been rounded up. And Danny fires back, we're living, thinking, moral beings like you like the people downtown. That gives us not only the right, but the obligation. And Bobby argues that the subs, the people downtown, again, he points to, they choose to live this way. They, the subs, they oppress themselves. The old rules and standards, they don't apply anymore. That's his argument. And he makes a final threat, that he'll use telepaths to force their memories to, to force the mutants, the, the new mutants, to accept this way of life and to join their cause. And even if they return to their normal earth, they'll still have this way of thinking in their head because Roberto wants to ensure this is the outcome of his past. He wants to ensure his present is saved. So in conclusion, you know, I think the highlight of this issue for me is really this, this earth, this future that, that, that Claremont creates. You know, Earth 87050 is fantastic. It's it's got for me it's it's super interesting. It's intriguing. You know, it's it's one of the first um, alternate realities where mutants are in control. They didn't get uh, wiped out or imprisoned like on so many other futures, and that's kind of intriguing, right? It certainly has its dark aspects. Like it is foreboding. If you're a human on this. In, in this world, like, it is not the place to be. You are in not good shape. Um, but if you're a mutant, this is perfection. It's not the survival of the fittest that we see with Age of Apocalypse, right? Like, this is a much calmer, more settled future uh, for the mutants. It's definitely a utopia, and it would be intriguing to see more of this. I do struggle a little bit especially at the end, the, the, the background art is almost non-existent. 
short of the Magneto sculpture. You know, and maybe that's because they're in this pr prison area. I don't know. But it, it's a shame. Because I, I, there are points in this issue where just the stunning, the fact that we have this amazing Heroes Plaza and these awesome roadways and these glimmering buildings and that scene where Roberto's sitting in his office overlooking the expanse that is upper, the upper city. And then you have those desolate, war-torn relics of old New York where the humans are living and, you know, they don't have anything down there. Like, it's so disproportionate and unequal and unsettling in some ways. It's it's wonderful. Like, I just love those juxtapositions and the, extreme, the extremes that they are both ends that they occupy on the spectrum of uh, wealth and well, well-being. So I, I enjoy that, and I would love that explored more, and I would like that really highlighted in that final scene. But like I said, maybe it's a prison cell, and that's why it's not more ornate. But um, all that being said, I, like I said, I love the world. I think it's super intriguing. It would be interesting to explore it more. And there's just all these little neat Easter eggs, right? Like Sam and the, uh, calling Warlock and, and Cypher Douglock for the first time. We've got this hint at Archangel, whether that was intentional or just, you know, random. I don't know, but interesting. Just these little nuggets. And then we have some great character moments in Heroes Plaza with Sam and, and Danny. Really, Sam and Danny, for me, have a great... Uh, they, they have these great moments in this issue where they really are kind of forced to deal with what it means to become an adult and how the ideals of youth may not match the realities of an uh, as a, of adulthood and that's what they're confronted with here right they grew up in xavier's dream of humans and mutants living together in harmony and that that would be achieved danny believed it to her core she thought they would all grow up and they'd live happily ever after everyone would be happy and nobody would suffer that was her belief and and they attribute that to childhood dreams but that's Xavier's dream to a certain degree, which is almost as if we're saying his dream is childish, is too simplistic. In a lot of ways, it is. And that's explored later on in, by other writers in great detail. And so we have Danny really coming to terms with that and seeing this possible future for her and her friends where they may not even survive like to have to confront that. It's really a great story arc um, in terms of that. Like this, this, this section of the story is beautiful. Like for that reason, I think it's just it's really a well put together, well put together book. And that that scene with Net Magneto's nightmare, right? His dream, and we really start to see his character come together in a way that Claremont has been working towards for a while now, and. This, this is it right here. This is the payoff. This is his, re you know, moment of, this is what's up. This is why he is the way he is. Like, he's expressed it to other mutants. He's expressed it to Kitty Pride. He's, you know, he's trying to protect the younger generation of mutants. And we're seeing, too, his struggles and how he just can't quite meet up to Xavier's standards. And that struggle with his dream, with his own dream, with his own hopes, with his own wishes, with his own desires to protect mutant kind, and how those two just don't necessarily mesh 
with Xavier's dreams. So we have younger mutants who can't fit and don't see how Xavier's dream might work. Not that they're not willing to, to fight for it. And then you have Magneto, who's older, who's been through a lot, who doesn't see a way necessarily to make Xavier's dream work either. His beliefs, his experiences, his guilt to a large degree don't mesh and don't allow him to really work or live up maybe to Xavier's um, ideals or the ideals he sees Xavier possessing. And he always seems to come up short, whether it's because people are manipulating him, like Emma and Empath did, um, as I alluded to earlier, or because he lacks confidence or trust or whatever the thing is. He has struggles, and that puts him in positions where his uncertainty leads to, you know, joining the Hellfire Club as the White King. Now, he's not the only member of the X-Men that does this. Storm also does this. She joins and becomes the, the Black Queen. So it's a struggle for him as well. The idea being that there's Xavier's dream, the younger generation is struggling to match that and to see that and how that's going to work in a world that fears and hates them. Either it's they're, they're being shown a future that has mutants dominating mankind and they're living in a present that... Humans want nothing to do with mutants. In fact, they want to round them up. They want to uh, them down with sentinels. They want to brand them and register them and treat them less than human. And then you have Magneto, whose past experiences, the Holocaust, and all of that show him that humanity can't be trusted. They do horrible things to people that are different than them. And his only desire is to protect mutantkind. That didn't necessarily mean finding a way to live with mankind. But that's what Xavier's dreams calls for, and he doesn't see a way to make that work. So this very simplistic belief that if we all work together and we all pull together, everything will be hunky-dory, we'll have a utopia. It just doesn't seem to pan out, because there's too many players involved. It's just a great story. I really like it, and I, I think it's a great book. I, I think this is a great issue. Definitely enjoyed it better than the last issue. I just like the world that's presented. I like the questions that are brought up, I guess. And whereas the last issue was more of a retread of Days of Future Past. Anyways, I, I hope you enjoyed this, this uh, episode. And in two weeks, we'll be releasing another episode focusing on exploring issue number 50. So I hope you tune in then. And until then, keep reading those comics. James Explores the New Mutants is, as always, recorded in Des Moines, Iowa, and is produced by myself using the Anchor app with Audacity Software. New episodes are published every other Wednesday and can be found wherever podcasts are available. You can reach the podcast on Twitter at Explore New Mutant or via email at exploringthenewmutants at gmail.com. Visual companions to the episodes are available on Facebook and Instagram by searching James Explores the New Mutants. Tune in next week as we explore issue number 50.